Hello, this is Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman of Columbia University, and this is Shrink Speak. Today our topic is suicide, and how could it not be after uh, recent events in which we had two celebrity suicides that shocked the world, and also at the same time a report coming from the CDC which revealed a increase of 30% that has occurred over the last 20 years. Uh, in order to try to understand the significance of these developments, I'm happy to be able to talk today with two of the leading experts in the field of suicide research in the world. Dr. John Mann is the Janssen Professor of Psychiatry and Translational Neuroscience at Columbia and has for over a three-decade career focused on the study of suicide ranging from the genetics, neurobiology, to the therapeutic treatment, assessment of risk factors, and epidemiology of suicide. Also with us is Dr. Kelly Posner, who is a child psychologist who is professor of psychiatry at Columbia and has studied suicide in terms of the scope of its occurrence, its associated risk factors in the population, particularly with a focus on youth. And in the course of doing so, she, with uh, Dr. Mann and colleagues at Columbia, developed the eponymous Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale, which has become the standard in the field of healthcare for an instrument to assess an, a person's potential risk for suicide. So, John Kelly, thanks for being with me today. For those of us that work in the field of mental illness and mental health care, uh, we deal with suicide as a potential complication of mental illness all the time. But the media and the public gets exposed to it when there's some big event. All too frequently, it comes in the form of celebrity suicide. In the case of Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain, that was the case. And then on top of that, we got the CDC report of this increase. And I don't want to sound too glib about it, but it seems to me that while we get these shocking news events that awaken this interest in the public, you know, we, we on a day-to-day -day basis are dealing with this. So it seems to me it's, it's a little like Mark Twain's comment about the weather. Everybody talks about it, but nobody ever does anything about it. Is that a fair statement, or how would you sort of describe what happened in those preceding weeks uh, in terms of what the overall phenomenon of suicide has been over the decades that you've been working and studying with it? I certainly think it's a fair statement, and I think that it's based on a lot of misunderstanding that the public has on about the scope and the magnitude of the problem. So let me just paint some perspective here, all right? Suicide has always been one of the world's greatest public health crises, leading cause of death across the world, across ages. To give you some examples, the number one cause of death in adolescent girls across the globe ends more lives than car accidents, kills more firefighters than fire. Well, um, it's, 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 it's currently listed at what, number 10? Number 10, States? but number two in 10 to 24-year-olds, you know, number four if you... Whittle. Has it, has it uh, always been number 10, or has it been higher or lower in the past? It's always been right up there as one of the leading causes of death mm -hmm. a, a, across the world, every 40 seconds. So, you know, the rise has been 1.5% mm -hmm. per year, slow and steady, but it's always been this huge issue. And it, and it touches everybody. You know, 135 people are affected by, by every suicide, and those effects linger across generations, you know, because of the silence that often follows. What we know is that its biggest cause is depression, the most, the number one cause of disability in the world. And this is a genetic, treatable medical illness, but we don't think of it like we think of cancer, right? You wouldn't hear the word choice when it, when it comes to cancer. Uh, if you're looking at it from a world perspective or from the US, uh, I think it's fairly 
very important to understand that the world suicide rate has been dropping, that the United States, which was around 72nd um, in terms of rankings in countries in terms of suicide, has dropped into the 30s. So we have been going seriously backwards in terms of having an increasing suicide rate relative to the rest of the world, which has actually had many countries where the suicide rate has been dropping over the same period of time. So we're doing something different to the rest of the world. And um, if we could understand some of those factors, we could do something about it. One of the biggest factors is that the, um, in the rest of the world, uh, China and India account for a lot of the suicides. They account for a lot of the world's population. And their suicides have been have involved using very deadly methods like pesticide overdoses. But we have our equivalent here in the United States, um, firearm suicides. They didn't improve their mental health services very much. They just steered people away from very lethal methods like pesticide overdose. If a person uses a less lethal method and survives, the odds of them dying in the future of suicide um, drops down to 15%. So these are fascinating statistics. I hope that our listeners is able to appreciate them, but to try and put it in a, a very succinct and broad context, it sounds like what you're saying is that a suicide is undeniably and, and also has been for a very long time a, a public health problem. And that problem, unlike other public health problems like smoking or asbestos or obesity or heart disease, efforts at public health initiatives reduce that. But in the case of suicide, at least in the United States, that hasn't been done, or if it has, it hasn't been very effective. So this is a public health problem that is not new. It's existed, even though the shocking news came out all at once a few weeks ago when CDC and the celebrity suicides occur. The rate has been rising over a longer period of time. Um, and also, in addition to being collectively rising, it's, it's affecting certain demographic and gender groups differently. And I think it's really important to know that, at, you know, depression, it's number one cause. And we know since we have modern antidepressants like Prozac and Paxil, the suicide rate has dropped dramatically across the world, across ages, reversing a trend prior to their introduction. Autopsy studies always show that they're associated with lack of compliance. You know, not treating depression is what kills people. So if we know these medicines work, What's what's the problem? The problem is that most people who need treatment do not get it. 50 to 75% of those in need receive no treatment or inadequate treatment. We believe because of the stigma and the misunderstanding and the, the barriers that we have to break down to connect people to the, to the care that they need. Uh, one of the things that we've noticed in our studies is that the very group that needs the most help, the ones that are at highest risk, actually... Um, are not very good at getting help. Uh, they tend to uh, have difficulty asking for help, recognizing that they need help, communicating the need for help. Uh, and even when they're set up with a referral, they are the ones that don't show up for the appointment. They sort of slip through the cracks, of, and we have many cracks in our healthcare delivery system. We're having trouble getting at those people, which is why a lot of suicide prevention uh, focus 
is on friends and family, recognizing in somebody else um, that they seem depressed, despondent, uh, making expressions such as, you know, I don't think life's worth living, what's the point, I'm just a, a burden, and giving away valuable possessions to people. These are signs that somebody's in trouble. Uh, they may not recognize it themselves, and they not, may not even be capable of engineering the appointment to get help from a professional. They'll need their family and friends to push them along in that direction. In the course of this discussion, we're going to make some very explicit points that are not being communicated sufficiently uh, through the media to the public and that listeners who are non-health professionals should regard as absolutely you know, truthful take-home messages. So the first is, is that suicide is not a new problem and these, the news about it, about the spike and everything, okay, yeah, uh, that's worrisome, but this has been happening for a long time, so it's a problem that's been there in plain sight that we haven't been doing anything about. And the only reason we're talking about it now is because two celebrities happened to kill themselves in the same week. The second thing you said is that the vast majority, and, and the figure I think you, you have shared with me, upwards of 90% of people who commit suicide have pre-existing mental conditions, whether it's diagnosed or treated or not. And then you're saying that uh, we have treatments that work, and people are getting them, although not enough people are getting them, but despite that, the rate is still going up to some degree. So it's a little bit of a, a paradox in that regard. I'm going to ask you to respond to it, but before I do, let me just introduce another theme that we're going to get into before the end of the, the discussion, which is the media's role in this, or their lack of uh, a constructive role in this. So among the journalists that uh, speak to mental health-related issues uh, is the lead journalist for the holy New York Times, Mr. Ben Carey. And Ben Carey, who really is very obviously committed to this topic, uh, in many instances, in my humble opinion, doesn't really get it right in terms of enlightened and accurate and unbiased, well-researched articles. So in the context of suicide and the latest incidents, which has prompted the debate, uh, on June 8th he had an article where he's talking about how suicide quietly morphed into a public health crisis. Well, right there, the headlines are on because it hasn't quietly morphed into a crisis. It's been a crisis for a long time that we're just simply paying more attention to now. And he, in this, says, well, wait a minute. Uh, if more people are being treated than ever before and antidepressants are being prescribed more than ever before and psychotropic drugs are being why is the rate going up? And then he reaches out to none other than our former fearless leader, Dr. Tom Insel, who had been the director of the NIMH, and says, if treatment is so helpful, why hasn't its expansion halted or reversed suicide trends? And uh, Tom responds, this is a question I've been wrestling with. Are we somehow causing increased morbidity and mortality with our interventions? So the bottom line is that the CDC, in a different report, which the, um, seems to have been missed by most of the media, pointed out that the rate of treatment of individuals who die by suicide, who have an illness, is uh, approximately 18%. So we may be treating more people, I'm sure that's probably accurate, but we're not treating the people with psychiatric illnesses who are going to end up dying by suicide. They are falling through the cracks. 
it's, an, it's a shockingly ro low rate of treatment. One in about five of these individuals was being treated at the time of death. So essentially, suicide used to be, and in the US remains, largely a complication of psychiatric illness that is not being treated, and we need to change that. As I mentioned, up to 75% of, of people in need don't receive any treatment or adequate treatment, the overwhelming majority. And again, wh why is that? You know, one of the things we, we know is that males die by suicide more than more than females. And, and there's all this stigma and misunderstanding about real men don't get depressed, I'm weak, snap out of it. One of our colleagues actually did important work with the CDC, and you know what he found? only 11% of male suicides had antidepressants in their system versus 44% in females. Again, stigma and barriers of misunderstanding that prevent the people who need help from getting it. But the other thing I think that's very important to note is that we know that 50% of people who die by suicide have seen their primary care doctor the month before they die. We need to be asking the way we monitor for blood pressure or do vision testing. Many adolescents who've tried to take their own life who show up to the emergency department are not there for psychiatric reasons. So if we don't ask like blood pressure, we're not gonna find the people suffering in silence because they're not gonna be able to come to you. But even that's not enough. The Undersecretary of Defense wrote this urgent memo that it's not enough to have the doctor ask. We have to have everybody ask. Parent, teacher, friend, coach, that's how we're gonna find the people suffering in silence and connect them to the care that they need. So just to keep our sequence of, of take-home messages, suicide is not a new problem. It's uh, been ongoing throughout human history and has escalated maybe in the modern era. And this latest rise is not like a spike. It's just the uh, zenith of what this upward trend has been in our society. Secondly, most people vast majority of people who commit suicide have antecedent mental disorders that would be treatable. By the way, uh, in that regard, what mental disorders are the highest risk for suicide? Because we have in the DSM uh, 265 or so uh, diagnostic conditions, but suicide is not a risk for all of them. It's a risk for actually very few of them. Well, that's a good point. But um, we, we've done studies looking at uh, what was the diagnosis? What was the illness when the person died by suicide? The answer is overwhelmingly a depression, major depression. Uh, so that uh, whether mostly unipolar, but uh, a lot of bipolar patients. After that, you've got a whole hodgepodge of uh, conditions, but certainly substance use disorders are extremely important. Uh, and uh, then schizophrenia, eating disorders, and uh, borderline personality disorder, et cetera. So of the 90% of people who have treatable mental illness that die by suicide, 60% our depression and then the rest of this. And I think, you know, substance abuse, it's important to note, very often is people desperately trying to self-medicate in, in lieu of proper treatment. Right. So uh, just to also clarify this for the listeners, when you say depression, you're basically talking about mood disorders. So mood disorders can come in various sort of forms, the most common of which are, you know, unipolar depression, people get depressed on a recurrent, or bipolar people who have manic episodes in addition to depression. Um, and then there are nuanced versions or types of moods. But So mood is the big, big risk factor, that right there. And, and then you mentioned the others, anxiety or eating disorders or psychotic disorders. And it's interesting because psychotic disorders, the 
what impels people, at least from my experience, since uh, my area of research has been in psychotic disorders, what impels people to harm themselves and kill themselves is not always the despair and the hopelessness that occurs in depression, but it's often a command hallucinations. So people do it uh, because of some totally artifact of their deranged mind. What about PTSD? PTSD is an important uh, cause of suicide. It frequently occurs in people who also suffer from depressions. So the two um, are somewhat overlapping and um, interlinked. Uh, when people go on a tour of duty uh, in the military, um, about the same number get PTSD as a result of that as get depressions. When 9-11 happened, uh, about half of the, uh, the illnesses were PTSD, about the same number was um, uh, depression. So the two are, are somewhat linked, but PTSD is associated with a significantly increased risk of suicide. That's why so many veterans are affected by suicide. Uh, the rate of suicide in veterans is certainly elevated while they're um, in active service, but even after discharge from the military for decades, the, the rate remains elevated, and their symptoms of depression and PTSD don't go away either. So it's, they sort of carry that forward, and they have the additional problems of um, medication with um, uh, painkillers and um, other types of drugs. Also, if, if we want to think about what's most significant in terms of risk factors for the general public, what we know is the number one risk factor, the number one thing that is a clue to who's going to die by suicide is a history of a suicide attempt. Again, really important to ask people questions all the time. And the second one, the biggest cause, is a history of depression. And then as you add each of these other things, access to lethal means, et cetera, then the risk goes up. But those are the two most most significant things we need well, to think since, about. Since we're on risk factors, the increase that's uh, occurred in the CDC report, it's occurred particularly, and this is also something that's not something that has just happened. It's been ongoing for some time. Uh, there are certain uh, demographic and gender groups that are affected. Uh, just speak to that for a moment. So the uh, rate is uh, definitely higher in men than in uh, than in women, but um, always been has historically. Yes, but, but but now because of progressive improvement in gender disparities, whereas women are enjoying a lot of the advantages that men may have had, uh, you know, preferentially, they're also getting some of the bad stuff too. In a way, yes, that's true. So the uh, the gap um, has it was four times as many men killing themselves as women until the last few years, and now it's only three and a half times as many men as women. But this help-seeking aspect is really important because um, when uh, people are divorced or widowed or separated, financially the woman is usually worse off, but the increase in suicide rate is higher in men than it is in the women. So women are better at getting help. Uh, Kelly mentioned earlier that the um, likelihood of finding that there, a, a woman who's died by suicide was taking medication is higher than in men. So women are, are getting more help than men. But uh, there are other factors. Even though our society has changed a lot, uh, in 2008, a lot of people uh, lost their livelihood and were imperiled. Um, uh, men, uh, because of um, uh, stereotyping in our culture, probably felt more responsible for the loss of income to the family and the impact that flowed down. Kids couldn't go to the same school. They lost their house. They have to move to a poorer neighborhood. The whole, a, uh, the whole family is impacted. And the men who could no longer ha lost their job and couldn't provide the income um, felt more responsible. So 
Each of these kinds, when, when the um, opioid epidemic um, has soared, men are more likely to self-medicate than women with these kinds of drugs. So the way this all plays out is, uh, is quite complicated. Uh, but in general, men are, are an endangered species when it comes to suicide, even now. And that's consistent with what we see in the CDC findings that middle-aged men who have lower education, less education, and lower socioeconomic status have had more of an increase. Well, what struck me, though, is that both uh, uh, Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade were in this demographic, is that the, the biggest increases were seen for both men and women in this late middle age uh, decile. And the other, of course, which is uh, something that you've been focusing on, Kelly, in your work, uh, is that we see increases in youth, particularly in, in female youth. In youth, what we know part of the increase is related to is when all the misunderstanding and controversies about risk of medication and black box warnings, what happened was prescription rates started to plummet, and then guess what? People weren't getting the medications they need to save their lives, so that's when we started to see an increase in youth. We're hoping that, you know, with, with more understanding now, you know, that's starting to turn around, but it's been very, very, very problematic, and not only did the that did suicides increase, the diagnosis of depression plummeted to levels we hadn't seen in 10 years, and it spilled over into adults. Because if you're out there somewhere and you can't treat, you probably don't want to identify. So the unintended consequences were, were really t striking. Around 2003, 2004, when the black box warning was introduced, and, caution. And, and why was that introduced? It was introduced because the FDA had some data that suggested that there might be an increased risk of suicide in individuals on antidepressants compared to placebo in their clinical so, trials. So, so, so uh, I'm just going to uh, digress to focus on something that's related to this, but also gets at something which has been a, a more pernicious uh, strain, which is the virulent antipsychiatry attitudes perpetuated by some groups in this country. So the antidepressants were first developed in the 1950s. They were quite miraculous at the time. Um, four decades later, there's a challenge to their efficacy that was made, which I'm guessing you would agree with me was a unwarranted uh, challenge that shouldn't have resulted in what you're about to, to uh, explain. Yes, yeah, so they analyzed some uh, statistics in their own, using their own particular methodology, and they found this so-called signal of risk. Um, which prompted them to put a black box warning about the safety of using antidepressants that it could p potentially... Who prompted the FDA to do that? When they first had this important question to answer, they realized they didn't have any data that was interpretable. So I, I led who the team the question? at Columbia. Who, so who posed the question? Pu the public was posing the question, right. and then FDA had to make sense of it. That's what, uh, that was right? my point. That was my point. And the, if you look at all the science, it points very clearly in one direction, that medications reduce suicide. But, and, and they work to alleviate depression. But what happens when the FDA has an important decision they like have this to, to make? They have to respond, yes. So they, so they okay, the, just uh, not to believe this. I was going to say this, Scientology and public health opinion that yes. actually led to those decisions, yes. not, not the science. I happen to have been on the FDA advisory committee in, I don't know, when it was 1990, I believe, or 91, when Prozac had just been introduced. And uh, remember Martin Teicher's work that uh, was sort of used as, again, the anti-psychiatry voices to question the efficacy. And a hearing had to be held to review the data. And did 
antidepressants not just not work to alleviate depression, but did they actually impel people to do things that were harmful? And the FDA did this analysis that you're alluding to, John, and then they had to hold a public meeting, and there was public testimony. And all of the bad things, these horrific cases, were anecdotal public testimony. When you look at the data, the statistics did, did not show this. But nevertheless, uh, the FDA had to go through this. A kind of a, a taint was placed over this class of psychotropic drugs, and it still continues to some extent. Well, the result of all this was these black box warnings, which resulted in the biggest increase in um, suicide rates in youth since the FDA began um, maintaining these statistics. In one shot, um, we reversed the gains of years and years of um, careful education of patients and uh, doctors, and doctors became afraid to use these medications um, and became afraid to make the diagnosis of depression, and patients were left um, in the lurch. No treatment, no path to um, recovery, and no protection from suicide. When you have a medication class that um, helps depression and suicidal behavior, you are going to have some patients who will exhibit depression and suicidal behavior. Uh, some of them take the medication, some of them don't take the medication. When they did psychological autopsies to, of suicidal people to see if they, you know, there's some disproportionately higher rate of antidepressants in the brains of people who are killing themselves, which would fit with the model that these drugs are triggering these suicides, they found the opposite. It's very hard to find patients who died taking these antidepressants. It's exactly the opposite. These people are dying untreated, not treated. That's what we've got to fix. This is a statement that's coming from a guy who spent close to four decades studying suicide before it became fashionable to study suicide. Um, so it's the gospel truth. This has been a great discussion. Uh, I'm going to pause for a minute, uh, but then invite you to come back so we can continue the discussion in part two of Shrink Speak. We'd love to. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.